Star Real Estate, episode number 135. I would say more than half the deals I've done in the last six years have been thanks to the relationships I've built with my quote-unquote competitors. All right, thank you for joining me here at Just Star Real Estate. I appreciate you being here. My name is Mike Simmons. I'm your host. And before we get started, I just want to make a quick announcement and let you know that I'm currently accepting applications for my coaching program for the month of May. So if you'd like to get in, if you'd like to have me uh, get into your business and help you take it to the next level, I would be thrilled to talk to you. And like I said, I'm accepting applications for the month of May. And if you want to find out more, go to juststartrealestate.com forward slash coach. Okay, on to the show. Okay, thank you for joining me on another episode of Just Our Real Estate. I appreciate you being here, and I'm really excited. I've got a guest on today that I've had my eye on for a while to get on the show. He's a very, very busy guy, so I am extremely honored and thrilled to have him on the show. I have on the show today Jay Scott. Jay is a full-time real estate investor who specializes in rehabbing single-family homes and building new construction spec houses. Jay and his wife, Carol, started investing in 2008 and since have purchased purchased and rehabbed and resold nearly $15 million in residential real estate. Learn more about Jay and his flipping business at his blog, 123flip.com. Jay, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Hey, Mike. Glad to be here. Thrilled to be here, actually. Yeah, this is awesome. I didn't tell you. We spoke for a minute before we, we went live here. Uh, I've been following you for a while, specifically on Bigger Pockets, but I've also been to your website quite a bit. So I'm, I'm somewhat of a stalker, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, I just really appreciate what you're doing. And your website is just, it's, you know, it's chock full of such great stuff. I, I lose myself on there and start, you know, wandering through the blog posts and, and reading. And it's just great stuff, super educational. And, uh, you know, I know over on bigger pockets you're extremely busy over there answering questions and helping out the folks so it's awesome man i've been following you for a while well it, it goes both ways mike uh i actually hadn't heard of your blog until you contacted me a few months ago and since then i've been trying to catch up i know you have a hundred and i think close to 120 some uh interviews or, or podcasts yeah. you're gonna be when this comes out you're gonna it's gonna be somewhere around 136 or something like that well, I'm, I'm about 25 in, so give me four weeks. <laughs> All right. <laughs> will do. Will do. Um, so I want to get into this. I definitely want to get into your business. You flipped just a ton of property. And you, like I said, you're somebody who I, I genuinely respect. And I, you know, it's one of those things when you when you follow someone on the internet follow a blog or blog post or you know whatever you feel, kind of feel like you know the person a little bit or at least you have a real good understanding of their philosophies and their business and based on all of the reading that I've done of things that you've written and people that you've been helping uh, over the last several years I just really I know that you know your stuff and it's I'm really excited to have you talk about your business today and kind of get into this the rehabbing and I know you're into new construction now as well well. Um, and I definitely want to talk about that and why you're doing that. But let's start kind of at the beginning. And I, you know, you've been interviewed on other shows and, and you're you're somewhat of a celebrity here on, in, in terms of going on podcasts for real estate. But let's go over your background again briefly for people who don't know. Where, how did you start in real estate? Why did you start in real estate? Sure. Um, actually, I got into real estate pretty late in life. Um, my wife still jokes that uh, I'm 
to this day, still not allowed to change a light bulb in our house. <laughs> I'm not a construction guy. Yeah. Um, I'm not your typical real estate guy. I actually started in the corporate world. Uh, I have an electrical engineering degree. Um, I did the uh, the corporate thing for a long time. Uh, worked for a number of, of tech companies, Microsoft, eBay, DirecTV. Uh, did all that sort of stuff for about 15 years. I met my wife back in 2006. We worked together at, at the same company. And when we decided to get married in 2008, uh, we were both working 80-hour weeks. We were both traveling three or four weeks a month, Jeez. never saw each other, never really had time to, to, to form a relationship. And it certainly wasn't a good recipe for starting a family, which is what we wanted to do. Yeah. Um, so we made the joint decision that we were going to quit our jobs and we were going to figure out something new to do. But we had no idea what that new thing was going to be. Wow. That, I mean, you know what? I think that's interesting for a couple things. Number one, <clears throat> you're working 80 hours a week. Now, when you were working those kind of hours, did you get your start in real estate while you were working? Was it one of those situations or did you just do cold turkey? I want to do real estate quitting my job. So uh, real estate was going to be a hobby. Okay. Um, we were, we were going to quit our jobs. We were going to figure out some other business or, or some, other, some other form of making money. And uh, at the time, I decided I like real estate. I've always thought about real estate. I know nothing about real estate. I'm going to learn a little bit and make it a hobby while we're doing something new. Gotcha. So I'd say about a year before we quit our jobs, we put the plan in place uh, to, to leave. Um, and so I spent about a year studying, putting together plans, reading different blogs. I actually started on bigger pockets about a year before, uh, before I ever started investing. Um, and I started writing a little bit. I actually started working on my website, uh, a few months before I ever quit my job thinking, okay, I need some accountability for, for doing something when I quit my job. Right. Um, I don't know what business I'm going to start. I don't know what I'm going to do. So I'm going to kind of jump into this real estate thing and create a website and it'll keep me accountable for actually doing something and, and trying to make a little bit of money uh, after after I quit my job. And my wife and I moved from California to Atlanta back in 2008. Um, we, were, we moved in May. We were getting married in, in August and the, the discussion was by August, we'll figure out what to do. So... Um, from a real estate side, I was looking at doing some multifamily investment, some buy and holds, didn't really know what. Um, it was June of 2008. My wife and I were sitting in, in our house. We were watching uh, TV. I think it, there was HGTV show on. And <laughs> it was a typical 2008, everything was house flipping shows. Yep. And my wife said, hey, we're not really doing anything this summer. We're not going to really start whatever business we're going to start um, in, for a couple more months until after we get married. Let's flip a house. <laughs> and I thought she was joking. Um, turns out she was completely serious. Those shows don't exactly make it look easy or fun or anything. I mean, I guess at the end there's big dollars, but it looks miserable during you know during the rehab. My wife is she's a designer, so I don't think she cared about the unfun parts. <laughs> she wanted to go in and say, decorate, "Let's yeah. put this here and decorate this and yeah. use these colors." That's all she cared about. <laughs> um, and I thought she was joking, and so I jokingly said, "Sure, let's do it." Um, and little did I know, but at that point, I made a commitment to flip my first house. Um, it was two days before our wedding that we actually put the first one under contract. 
Um, and within two weeks after that, we put two more under contract. And uh, I, I think within the first couple of months, we did four or five. And wow. it just it, it went from just uh, just a lark, something, hey, let, let's do this, to what turned out to be our business for the last six years. Well, let me ask you then. Okay, so you kind of decided on a lark. And next thing you know, three or four houses a few months later – how did you fund them? Was it your own? I would assume it was your own money. You hadn't made contacts or kind of gotten that serious about it. So we were lucky to start with a little bit of cash. The first okay. one we funded with our own cash. Um, by the second one, we were hesitant to put in any more of our own cash because we weren't quite sure we knew what we were doing. <laughs> right. um, if anything, we were pretty sure we didn't know what we were doing. Um, so we started looking at other options. For our second deal, um, and in retrospect, this is actually still a little bit funny. Um, for our second deal, we actually went conventional financing. Okay. Now, I didn't realize back then was conventional financing is great if you're going to buy a move-in ready house. If you're going to buy a house that is not move-in ready, that's somewhat distressed, that needs work, it can be really, really tough to get a conventional loan. Right. Um, we had a house that was borderline move-in ready, but there were a couple little issues. The hot water heater didn't work, and there was no stove in the house. And those are two things that, uh, that a conventional loan, you're just not going to get through underwriting without those things being yeah. remedied. Yep. This was a foreclosure. Uh, the bank absolutely refused to, fit, to, to replace the hot water heater or put in a stove. It was, it was basically an as-is sale. We had put a decent amount of earnest money down. We were past our financing contingency when we found out that the bank didn't want to fund the loan. Yeah. So we essentially begged the bank to let us go in before closing with our own cash, install a new hot water heater, and install a stove. The wow. bank said, great, you can do it, but if for some reason you don't close, we're keeping it. So <laughs> – so basically, add to our earnest money another fifteen hundred dollars in repairs that we did before closing. Oh wow! And, and and we really needed to close this deal. Yeah. Ultimately, we got it closed, um, but I did learn a, an important lesson there about trying to use conventional financing for uh, for for rehab deals. You know, that's funny. Uh, in my first deal that my wife and I ever did, we're we're partners in our business as well. The first deal that we ever did, we we. We uh, financed it with conventional financing. We went through a mortgage company, basically, and got a mortgage. And we didn't have, I mean, I guess there was a stove and hot, there wasn't anything fundamental that was missing. It needed, you know, a, a kind of a light rehab, but that's exactly what we did. We did conventional financing. We pushed our savings, you know, to the center of the table, basically, for the for the rehab money. And, and that's how we did our first one. So that's interesting. I guess I didn't think about the fact that you're right. You'll never get through underwriting without basic necessities in the house. They just won't, they don't look at it that way. Same way we do, yep. at least. So isn't it and, funny, and though? Oh, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, going quickly back though, to the uh, the rehab shows that you watched that sort of inspired your wife. As someone who's flipped quite a few houses, to say the least, since then, isn't it funny how poorly they estimate the rehab cost in all those shows? Is it just blow your mind? <laughs> it's funny. I always assume that those things are completely scripted. Have to be, right? They have to be. You'd be the worst all-time investor if every single time you missed your rehab by $30,000, $40,000. And yet they still make another thirty or 40000 Exactly. And it always turns up roses for them. If I lost exactly. thirty or forty in a house deal, I would be... Uh, I would definitely not be making money. I, I don't know about where, where you are in Maryland there, but uh, in my market in Michigan, a typical deal, a very run-of-the-mill deal is buy it for 60 to 80 and sell it for 150 to 160 somewhere in there. I mean, that's a standard deal. And there's usually about, you know, you shoot for twenty to $25,000 in profit. So if I lost $20,000 on every deal, I would be I would be not making money. Those are 
pretty much the exact same numbers I've been working with the last two years, both in Atlanta and Maryland. So I'm right there with you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I always thought that was interesting because it's funny. We started in 2008 as well, my wife and I, and we watched those shows too. And all the, you know, all the, the cast of characters that were in those shows and just screaming their lungs out at contractors and missing the rehab and, you know, didn't realize that it needs a new roof. And, you know, it, it scared the crap out of my wife. She's not someone who's really into like risk. So, you know, it, it didn't. It, I actually, for a while there, I, I just tried to avoid those shows because, if anything, they were they were pushing her away from the idea of of uh, real estate investing. So, yeah, they're they were interesting, but they were became detrimental because we were in the middle of flips while we were watching these shows, and it was just scaring the hell out of her. Well, we certainly, it was eye-opening for us. We, um, back in 2010, we were actually approached by a producer for one of those shows um, that really, they were looking for people and, and they were interested in talking to us. And we ended up putting together several videos, basically, I guess, um, um, interview type um, uh, demo, demo reel type videos. Okay. And Basically, they came back and they said, you know, you guys are just way too boring for this. <laughs> and it's probably one of the best compliments I've gotten. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Turn down for a TV show. Yeah. Any any rehab that's exciting, by definition, is really not what you want. That's <laughs> funny. Exactly. <clears throat> so, okay, I got I got a pretty good idea of where you've come from and, and how you got started. What does your business look like today? Let's fast forward to 2014. What are you working on and and what does your business look like as it stands today? Well, it's funny. We've gone through a lot of changes the last uh, 8 to 12 months. Um, We spent 2008 through 2013 or the first half of 2013 in Atlanta. Um, We got to know the market really well. Uh, We had a small slice of Atlanta, um, one of the west suburbs, uh, where we were probably one of the the largest or the, the from a volume standpoint, one of the largest uh, rehabbers, which doesn't say much. Atlanta was a huge area, and there were a lot of guys that were doing 10, 20, 30, 40 times as many deals as we were. Um, but we did find this one little niche area where we were just we were doing a lot of deals, and things were pretty easy and comfortable. And in 2013, we decided to, to make a big move. I'm originally from Maryland. We have two little kids, um, ages three and four, who are getting ready to start school. Um, schools in Atlanta, public schools in Atlanta aren't that great. Um, public schools in Maryland are a lot better. Just so. lost my entire Atlanta listeners. I, All right, I, I, I love it. <laughs> I'm I kidding. It. I, I still do have deals in Atlanta. I still have part. <laughs> I, love um, I just don't want to send my kids to gotcha. school. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> so we decided to make a big move up to Maryland. Um, it was a great personal decision from a business standpoint. Um, it was pretty disruptive. Uh, we got up here. I grew up here, but it's been 15 years since I've lived here. Sure. So the last, uh, we actually got up here in November and the last six months or so have been essentially starting over for a business, um, learning new areas, meeting other investors, trying to find wholesalers, uh, trying to find, uh, team members from contractors to agents to, to lenders, to closing, uh, attorneys and, and title companies. Um, it, it's, it's a good reminder to me of what a lot of people are going through when they're just starting out in this business. And it's real easy after several years of having it easy, um, to use that word too often, um, it's real easy to forget about how tough it is to start out. And so this has been a a good eye opener for us. And it it really, it reminds us that this is a tough business to be in. And and so uh, we're getting there, but we're, we're essentially starting over the last few months in a new location 
basically from scratch. Wow. You know, that's interesting because you, you, like you said, you established yourself in Atlanta and you had a business going that, and I've heard you talk on other podcasts, like I said, where it, it was starting to get a little easy and, and not super, you know, not real challenging and maybe to use the word boring. I don't know if that's fair, but that's so true. now you've moved back to Maryland and, and what I really would like to dig into a little bit is, I mean, it was just great what you were saying. I'd like to know uh, from the perspective of someone who's actually done this, I, I asked this question a lot of my of my um, of the people that I interview, where I say, if you had to start over again from scratch, how would you do it? But you're actually doing it. So, if you don't mind, let, can we walk through a little bit some of the steps, some of the fundamental number one, number two building blocks of how do you do this? How do you build a uh, your business back in a different city where ba essentially you've lost all your contacts and all the people that you normally would deal with? How do you start? What what are the first couple of three to five things you have to do? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think the very first and, and the most important thing is to build a network. Um, there's a lot of data out there. You can get access to the MLS. You can drive neighborhoods. Um, you can you can read the paper. Um, there's a lot of data out there. Um, but first and foremost, the absolute best source of information in any market is going to be the people that are actually doing it in that market. Yeah. Um, so meet other investors, um, whether it be online or actually in person. Um, I'm lucky. Um, Baltimore, and I'm actually between Baltimore and D.C., um, is a huge metro area. Um, yeah. There's got to be at least five or ten different uh, uh, investor associations here, um, thousands of investors, which is good and bad. I mean, from, from the competition standpoint, it's bad, but from a um, – Having people to network with and to learn from, it's been fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so first and foremost is is start to network with other people who are really doing it in that area. Um, don't be scared to ask your competition for help because ultimately, I mean, I, I'm, I'm one of those people that, that believes there's, there's enough to go around. And I'm always happy to help somebody when I believe it's going to come back to me. Yep, I love so, that. I love that. That's, that's, that's awesome. I'm glad you said that. It's definitely something I think people have an unreasonable fear of. They don't want to, they don't want to talk to the quote competition because they're going to take all the houses. There's just no way in the world, especially in a big area like you're in, there's just no way in the world they're going to take all the houses. There's always going to be deals out there. I would say more than half the deals I've done in the last six years have been thanks to the relationships I've built with my quote unquote competitors. Yeah. Um, had I never met any of those people, had I never chosen to, uh, to, to, to work or to, to be involved with any of those people, I'd have probably literally have done half as many deals as I have. That's so, awesome. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. Your competitors, it, it, there's a, there's a very fine line between competitors and partners. Yep. Um, and, and so, yeah, that, that would be my first piece of advice. Second, finding a great real estate agent. Um, I'm lucky. My wife is a great real estate agent. Um, give her access to the MLS and and she'll learn the ins and outs of an area in, in a week. Um, awesome. She's really good at, at, at mining data and just getting a big picture overview and then diving into the details. And that's essentially what a great agent's going to do for you. They're going to be able to steer you in the right direction. They may not be able to tell you, buy this house, don't buy that house. Um, but what they're going to tell you is the the ratio of distress pricing in this area to retail pricing in this area is huge. And what that means, and this is a, 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 big, uh, a, a big statistic I use in my business, um, 
the difference between what you can buy distressed properties for and what you can sell retail properties for is generally a great indicator of how good of a, a flipping market it is. Yeah. So, for example, if you're buying foreclosures or foreclosures in general are selling for 90 cents on the dollar um, and selling at market value, a dollar on the dollar, um, that 10% difference is not going to be enough to support all your rehab costs, all your holding costs, and your profit. Definitely. Um, but if you're finding distressed properties that are 30, 40, 50 cents on the dollar um, that you can then sell at market value, um, that 50, 60, 70% delta is plenty to account for your holding costs, your rehab costs, and your profit. Yeah. So, so that's, that's one big statistic I look for. And what I found is a lot of real estate agents, um, they don't think about distressed and retail properties in those terms, but they have that information. And if you can help them access that information in their brains, if you can really get them to think in those terms, they have that information and they can tell you, yeah, I, I know that that area, this particular over area over here, things tend to sell for really low when they're in bad condition, but when they're in good condition, they sell for just as much as everywhere else in the state. Yeah. And those are the places I want to be, exactly. as opposed to the areas where they say, yeah, the stuff in bad condition over here pretty much sells, sells for market value anyway, because everybody wants to live there. Yeah. Um, so uh, a great real estate agent so is definitely number two thing we did. First, okay. I started networking with people. Number two, I found a great real estate agent that, that knew the area really well. Uh, we spent a few days driving around. Ultimately, I didn't do any deals with that agent, and I, and I feel bad about that. He, he didn't bring me anything worthwhile, um, but he was tremendously helpful in my business. And, nice. and so um, that that's what I would say in terms of people talk about building a team. Um, I would say a team is great, but the by far the most important member of your team at first is going to be a, a great real estate agent. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And when you find one, treat him or her like gold because they can make the difference between success and failure in this business. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so um, so those were the two big things I did when I moved into the area. Uh, my wife got licensed in Maryland, so I'm a big believer in in getting MLS access and okay. in a lot of places the 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 only legal way to do that is to get your license um, some places that's not true you can get you can get access by being an assistant or, or other ways um, but um, but my wife chose to get licensed and having access to the MLS for me when you when you start in a new location is certainly something that's really going to put you steps ahead of the competition uh, Good. Now, are you finding, I just wanted to say, I, I know when I started my business in 2008, you could find deals on the MLS all day long. It really was actually relatively easy. It, now, you were saying that, in your opinion, getting that MLS access is important. And I, I agree with you, but I'm wondering how many of your deals are you finding on the MLS versus marketing or word of mouth or just networking like you talked about? How many pure MLS deals are you finding? I haven't found a deal off the MLS in a year and a half. Okay, <laughs> that's that's um, kind of that's kind of where I'm at. That's what I'm thinking too, as far as my area. So okay, and yet I'm on the MLS not every day anymore, but at least three or four times a week. Now, was that um, just a matter of just watching the market, understanding what houses are selling for, that kind of thing? Exactly. Okay. I want to I want to see where the where the distress sales are coming from, uh, what they're selling for, what the trends are. Um, I want to see what retail sales are selling for. I want to know what areas that are, are trending up, what areas are trending down, what areas are, are staying flat. Um, I want to know where the cash sales are because that's where my competition is. 
Um, and a lot of people say, well, if you have a lot of competition in one area, go to another area. Actually, I look at it the other way. Um, if, if you're entering a new market, um, you want to find out where the cash sales are yeah. um, because the smart investors, that's where they're investing. Um, <laughs> Isn't that kind of the like the Burger King model? They just figured out where McDonald's was and they put, set up shop across the street. You don't have to do any market research that way. And as bad as it sounds, it works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and and I, I, I hate the fact that I mean, literally in Atlanta, there were people that were doing that to us. They would look at the neighborhoods we were investing in and they would follow us in. And as much as I hated that, um, I had to give them some credit because (laughs) that's, I do, I would do the same thing and I do do the same thing, uh, with my competition when I'm going into a new market. Um, so it's, it's definitely, um, it's, it, I don't consider that to be unethical in the least. Um, you're looking for your own deals and, and again, um, you should be meeting those people and you should be figuring out how to help them as much as, as they're helping you. Um, so that that's that's another piece of advice um, and another thing that we've done. And then the other thing we've actually been pretty lucky with in Maryland that we weren't so lucky with in, in Atlanta is there are a decent number of good wholesalers here. Um, it's not to say there aren't decent wholesalers in Atlanta, um, but Atlanta, there was a lot more competition for deals. Okay. Um, and I think a lot of the, the good wholesalers down there would get shut out quickly because there were so many investors that, that could pounce on deals right. in Maryland. There are a lot of investors, um, but there aren't a lot of highly seasoned investors. So many of the wholesalers here are able to pounce on those deals before an investor can. And I've found that, that we've picked up so far this year, uh, one in January, one in February, one in March, we've picked up three wholesale deals, um, in in maryland in atlanta we picked up one in five years wow Uh, Wow. so when i say picked up wholesale deals i mean deals from a wholesaler yeah right exactly now can i ask you real quick as far as dealing with the wholesaler i I get this question from listeners from time to time what do you uh, okay let's back up for a minute what do you consider or how do you qualify from a financial standpoint how do you qualify a flip as being a good deal or not a good deal? Do you use a general rule of thumb? What criteria do you use? And then the next question what, what that I was going to ask is when you go and, and you and you meet with a, a wholesaler or talk to a wholesaler, how do you convey to them what you consider a good deal? Sure. Um, my formula is pretty simple. And um, if anybody's listening to this and, and wants to write it down, it'll be a little bit more obvious if you, if you write it down and can actually see it. But my formula is basically the amount I'm willing to pay um, is the ARV, so the after repair value, what the house will sell for when it's fixed up, um, minus the purchase price, minus the rehab costs, minus the fixed costs. Um, um, did I say that right? Uh, after repair value minus um, purchase price, rehab costs, um, and and fixed costs. Yep. Um, and that'll be in the show notes, by the way. All this, everything we talk about here is going to be in the show notes. So please, if you're driving, don't try to scratch this down. I swear, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, so basically, what what that means is um, if you add up the purchase price plus your rehab costs, um, plus all your fixed costs. I, and I consider fixed costs, uh, all your holding costs, your commissions, your fees. For me, those account for, those are about 10% of the resale price. Yep. Um, and, and then you add in, um, um, your profit number. Uh, that's basically your all in value, um, okay. or your all in cost. Yeah. Um, and I think I did a really bad job of just saying, <laughs> let, let me try that one more time. Okay, go for it. Um, 
let's use an example. Um, if I have a house and I know that it's selling for, uh, it, I can resell it for two hundred thousand um, dollars after it's fixed up. Um, I start with the number two hundred thousand um, dollars. From that, I'm going to subtract what I think the rehab costs are. Um, let's say in this case, I think the rehab costs are fifty thousand okay. dollars. So so far we have two hundred thousand minus fifty thousand. Um, next I'm going to subtract out, um, my fixed costs and these are holding costs, things like taxes, insurance, long care, um, all those things, all my commissions that I'm going to pay to real estate agents, all my closing costs, all my fees, um, all of those things. Those things tend to be about 10% of the resale value. So in a typical $200,000 sale, my fixed costs are going to be about $20,000. Okay. Um, so, so far we have the 200,000 minus the 50,000 in rehab costs minus the 20,000 in fixed costs. Sure. Lastly, I'm going to subtract out the profit that I want to make. In general, the profit I want to make is about 15% or at least 15% of that resale value. So in this example, the resale value is $200,000. I want my minimum profit to be at least $30,000. Gotcha. So we take Again, the two hundred thousand we subtract out the fifty thousand in rehab costs, yep. the twenty thousand in fixed costs, and the thirty thousand in in my desired profit, and two hundred thousand minus fifty minus twenty minus thirty is a hundred thousand dollars. Got it. That, that's the price I can pay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, and it's really that simple. Um, and I can say to a wholesaler, figure out what the resale value is. Hopefully, they can figure that it's somewhere around 200,000, um, figure out about what the, uh, what the rehab costs are going to be. Hopefully they can get somewhere in the range of about 50,000. Um, use my formula of 10% of the, the resale value as my fixed cost, the 20,000 and use my formula of 15% of the, the resale value as my profit number. And you can figure out exactly what I'm going to pay. Yep. So basically all they need to be able to figure out is the resale value and the rehab number. Uh, the rehab cost number, and they know exactly what I'm going to pay. If they can get close to those two numbers, they can figure out what I'm 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 willing to pay for the deal. Got it. They can then subtract out their their desired profit on the deal, and that's what they can sell it to me for. Gotcha. Awesome. I like that. That's that's it's simple and uh, it makes sense. And it's actually it's very very similar to what I do too. I, I start with the ARV and just start subtracting away from there. Uh, as far as the fixed costs, I guess. M I did have a, that ten percent rule. I sort of, yeah. I, I guess I, I was I was in that range, but I didn't have a, a hard and fast ten percent rule. But I like that. That's 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 very easy to. Despite the fact that you thought you didn't explain it well, you, you did. I, I was writing it down though, so maybe that helped me. But it's very simple to follow, and I think it's very sound. It's very safe and sound, and, and it makes a lot of sense. So I like that. It's good. Yeah, and, and here, here's my trick with wholesalers, um, and I think um, this is this is probably better for for those investors who have done at least one or two or three deals. Um, but the best way to get deals from wholesalers is to mentor them and to train them. Um, the the three wholesale deals I've gotten so far in Maryland um, have come from two wholesalers that before they sold these three deals to me had never done a deal. Oh, wow. um, they approached me. They were they had they had done a lot of studying. They were willing to work hard, um, and they basically said, "If I come to you with a deal, um, would you be interested?" And we talked for a little while, and both of them, I saw some potential, and and I said, "I'll do one better. I'm going to help you find those deals, and all I ask is, in the future, when you find more deals, you bring them to me first. Nice. Um, 
if I'm not willing to pay your price, take them to somebody else, but bring them to me at, at whatever your price is and give me first dibs. And in return, I'm going to help you get your first couple deals. I like it. It's like you have a farm team of wholesalers. I like that. Exactly. <laughs> and, and you don't have to be a, a seasoned investor to know enough to help train a, a wholesaler. Right. Um, and it's, it's been tremendously valuable. Like I said, just the, the, these two wholesalers so far have brought me three deals this year. Um, I'm confident they'll probably bring me more before the year's out. And, and hopefully I can find a few more people that are just like that, that are interested in learning and, and willing to work hard. And, and for me, that's, that's a perfect trade-off. I'm, I'm always happy to, uh, to help somebody in, in return thinking or knowing I'm going to, I'm going to get something back in the future. Exactly. I love that. That's very cool. And I've never heard anybody give that advice to, to sort of, you're basically training them in what you want, but it, it, like you said, at the end of the day, that benefits you because they're finding houses and qualifying them perfectly for you suited for what you're looking for in your business. And hopefully, like you said, they're grateful and they appreciate the mentoring. And then they're going to come to you, like you said, very, you know, first with these deals. And it just, I mean, it's a win-win situation, right? I, I think as a wholesaler, I don't think they care if they sell everything that they find to one person or to 10 people. Frankly, it's easier to sell to one person. So it's, it's, it is a win-win situation. I mean, there's really no downside for the wholesaler, free education, and they have a built-in buyer. It's awesome. Yep. And and from my perspective, if they bring me just one deal and I make $25,000 off that deal, I'm essentially being paid $25,000 to mentor somebody. And that's I'm, not a bad so, coaching fee. Somebody $25,000. <laughs> yeah, I got you. <laughs> that's awesome. No, that's awesome. That's very good. And they're making money too, right? So it's, it's exactly. just total win all the way around. So exactly. I, again, I, you know, mentoring th these wholesalers is a, one example. Like I said, I know you're very active on Bigger Pockets and you have your blog and I would be I would be willing to bet an awful lot of money that people approach you all the time asking for advice and help and mentoring. So if you don't mind my asking, because you're you're probably one of the best guests I've had to answer this, what are some of the mistakes that you see new investors making? What are some of the big ones where you just you know you cringe or you have to jump in and go whoa whoa, whoa wait a minute wait 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 you're you're gonna really screw this up let me let me talk you through this. Uh, certainly. Um... I am uh, I'm I'm a big believer in and and I, I know this is probably cliche but I'm a big believer in the the ready fire aim methodology. Okay. Um, it, there's there's nothing wrong or actually more than there's nothing wrong. You should spend time learning this business before you jump in. Um, and it if if you if you don't spend at least a few months reading and learning and running the numbers and 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 figuring out a plan that you're going to follow, um, you're, you're not going to do well. But once you feel like you've got a pretty good grasp on, on how things work and what your goals are and what you want to do in this business, you really have to get out there and do a deal. Um, too many people I see waiting till they find what they consider to be the perfect deal. And there really is no perfect deal out there, or, or very rarely is there a perfect deal out there. Um, and if you've never done a deal before, you're probably not going to recognize the perfect deal when it comes along anyway. Um, <laughs> I like that. That's good. You're right. One thing I've found with, with flipping houses, especially in, in the markets I've been in, and, and you talked a little bit about uh, you do deals in the – you buy them in the 60 to 80K range, you sell them in the 150 to 160K range, and you expect to make 20000 25000 in profit. Yep. Yeah, roughly. Yep. So – so, so that's telling me that you're doing what 40k in, in rehab on a typical deal. 
Yeah, somewhere in there, 30 to 40. Okay, so you're doing 30 to 40. Let's say you are off um, in your rehab estimates by 30% um, or 10 or 12K. And let's say you're off in um, in your your ARV by and and I'd say thirty percent is actually pretty reasonable for somebody to be off in their first rehab. Oh yeah. Uh, let's say your real estate agent tells you how much this house is going to be worth when when you go to resell it, um, and and she's off by ten percent. So that's fifteen thousand on this uh, on this hundred fifty thousand dollar deal. So suddenly you're over ten thousand dollars over budget, which is pretty much uh, it, it's not worst case, um, but but hopefully if 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 you did your due diligence, you shouldn't be off by more than thirty right. percent. Um, and let's say your your real estate agent messed up and was was overestimating the resale value by ten percent. So you're fifteen k too high there. Um, you've suddenly gone from from making twenty or twenty five thousand to essentially breaking even on the deal. Yeah. So for most real estate investors in most markets, and again, this this isn't going to hold true in places like New York City and and in California where where deals are six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars. But in a lot of areas where you can do a sixty or eighty thousand dollar deal that resells for one hundred fifty, hundred sixty thousand dollars, you can be off by a good bit on your, your rehab number. You can be off by a good bit on your resale number, and you can still not lose too much money, if any. Yeah. Um, I talk about the first deal I ever did where um, I was I was off on my rehab by about thirty thousand. I was off on my uh, my resale by about twenty thousand, and I had to hold the, the the house for three and a half years. Ooh. So I basically made every mistake you can make on this house, and I still made two thousand dollars. Nice. <laughs> um, nice. So. What a lot of people there, – there's this fear of, of large numbers. People think, I'm doing a deal. I'm putting sixty or 80000 in. I'm selling for $150,000 or $160,000. Um, I'm going to lose my shirt if I don't know what I'm doing. But the truth is if, if you make a lot of mistakes, it's still pretty hard to lose too much money yep. in this business when you're doing deals that size. You might lose five k You might lose ten k if, if you get really unlucky or something really bad happens. Um, but if if you're careful, that that's really the the worst case scenario. And so what I would tell most people is don't wait until you feel like you know everything to do your first deal, um, because you're going to learn more on that first deal than you'll learn in years leading up to it by reading everything you can read. Yeah. Um, so so jump in and and don't worry too much about losing money as long as as long as you you take some precautions, you're not going to lose too much, and 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 the value you'll get is 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 so much more than just sitting on the sidelines waiting for the perfect deal. Yeah, I, I really like that, Jay. You know, it's when I was sitting around trying to think of how I, I knew I wanted to do a podcast. I knew I wanted to help people. I knew I wanted to educate. And I was trying to come up with a name. I was trying to think of something that really exemplified what I was about and what I wanted people to do. And that's exactly why I came up with the name Just Start Real Estate because I agree with you 100%. You don't dive in before you have any education at all. But there's a point of diminishing returns. There's a point where you're just reading and reading and you're not getting more out of it. And you have to just start. And and I've listened to a lot of different founders and, and different people who started businesses, and inevitably, the the one piece of advice they, they, they tell people or the one thing that they would tell people if they could start over again is just start. Just get out there and start and do it yep. because, man, you know, like you said, the education you get in your first deal will far surpass any books or blogs or, or websites that you're reading about stuff. So that's what you need to do. I know my first deal, my first deal was actually very solid. I, I got, I probably got really lucky, and we sort of had what I would would consider to be 
you know, a paint and carpet rehab. I didn't really realize that's what I had when I bought it, but it, it was it was paint and carpet for the most part. And there was almost it was almost impossible to screw up. And and we actually ended up doing all right. It was a very solid deal at the time for us. So, you know, we got very lucky. If that had gone south and we had lost a lot of money, I don't know if I would be sitting here talking to you today about real estate. But it actually went well. It was proof of concept for my wife. And 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 once we did that deal and and, and got that check, it was like, all right, let's go. Where's the next one? And and it was good. It, it worked out for us. So. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. You have to get out there and get started. That, that's key. And I think that's a lot of... The mistake that most people make is just that being gripped in fear, that paralysis analysis, whatever you want to call it. And, and you know, websites like yours, for example, or my podcast or Bigger Pockets or whatever you're listening to, whatever source you're learning from, it's, it's a double-edged sword. You can learn a lot, but it can also be something that keeps you from from moving forward because you always feel like there's something else you should be learning so you have to be careful not to fall into that trap and jump out there and get going so i love that now you're a busy guy i know you're doing you know tons of tons of deals and and you're 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 basically starting over like you said in maryland which i think is is interesting and very cool that that you're going through that i have to believe in that process in the course of your day and dealing with people and and all the things technology that's available do you have any resources anything that you use that you rely on or really you know helps you get get things done a little more efficiently is there anything you can share um software could be hardware could be a physical product whatever um i am a huge fan of of automation um my, again, my wife and I originally got into this business because we wanted to start a family. We didn't want to be working 80 hours a week. Um, so a lot of people, um, I think people believe that because I'm pretty visible um, um, in, in, in kind of this small niche investor world um, that I'm doing tons of deals. And compared to a lot of investors, I actually do very few deals. Um we're doing somewhere in the the fifteen to twenty a year range. I know there are a lot of guys out there that uh, that are are doing fifty, a hundred, two hundred deals a year, um, and we don't do that. And and the reason is we're we're my wife and I, at least at this point, before our kids start school uh, in another year or two, we're pretty focused on on work life balance. And yeah. what we found is. The, the two best ways to really be able to focus on family, focus on, on, on the life part of work-life balance is, one, not trying to do too much. So um, there's a part of me that would love to do 50 or 100 deals a year, um, but I don't think I could do that without spending 40, 60, 80 hours a week. Right. Um, and then the second piece is really taking those, those few deals that we do, those 10, 15, 20 deals that we do a year um, – and trying to, to automate them as much as possible. Um, I, I really, we, we try hard to, to, to put our business on autopilot as much as possible. So we create systems, we create processes, um, we create things that are very replicatable um, in order that, that we can do as little work as possible, but still reap the most rewards, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. And I'll, a question for I have for you, then it brings up, do you have VAs or assistants or employees? How do you, how do you, you know, avoid having to do everything yourself? Yeah. So um, we, we use a couple different methods in our business. In terms of employees, um, we've, we do flips in a few different states. Uh, we do Atlanta, uh, Georgia. We do Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And we're now doing uh, in, in the Maryland area. 
in Atlanta and Milwaukee, we have full-time project managers um, who are responsible for the day-to-day rehabs. They're the ones that deal with the contractors. They're the ones that, that deal with, with negotiating and, and quality assurance and making sure things get done on schedule and, and on budget. Um, so they're really our, our boots on the ground day-to-day. Um, in Maryland, I'm playing that role, and uh, it's actually it's, it's part of the, the struggles I have here. I don't yet have a full-time project manager. <laughs> And, and let me tell you something, like I mentioned earlier, my wife still doesn't let me change light bulbs in the house. <laughs> so while I might be decent at, at managing contractors, um, I don't understand as I don't understand the construction side of things as well as a lot of people. Um, so, um, so generally they just want me out of the house. <laughs> so, um, so, so we're still working on this piece in the Maryland market. Yeah. Um, but a few things that we do in general, um, we're very focused on segmentation, our business. Um, and by segmentation, I mean, um, we have different people that are specifically focused on different tasks. We try not to, uh, to, to have people overlapping too much because that's where confusion comes in. Yeah. Um, historically, I've been responsible for for acquisition of our houses. Um, I'm the one that um, either finds the deals in the MLS, works with the wholesalers, um, deals with the direct mail campaigns, whatever that may be. Like I said, we, we typically have a full-time project manager who's responsible for the day-to-day. Basically, I, I talk about he's responsible for, for from from the day we close on the purchase of the property to the day it's rehabbed. He's responsible. Okay. And then Historically, my wife has been focused on the back end, the selling and the marketing. Um, and so we, we've always had a, a really good um, separation of, of tasks between the three of us. So me on the front end, pro- project manager in the middle, wife on the back end. Um, and that's helped because that way we never argue about these things. If, if, if it ha- comes yeah. to it comes down to, to something dealing with, with marketing, my wife is the final decision maker, hands down. Um, that's her responsibility. Um, when it comes to the day-to-day responsibilities, um, in the except for the very rare times that I might overrule them, my project manager has final say on everything. Uh, he has full authority, um, and likewise with me on, on the purchase side. So, so we're really big on segmentation. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I, that makes sense, and I, I, I'm glad you explained it that way because that's that's interesting. And I think for people who are trying to do this and and maybe juggle a, a day job, you know, that's exactly what they have to do. I mean, you can't do it yep. all yourself. Yep. The the second piece is is what I call replication. Um, so we're really big on trying to do the same things over and over and over and, and not having to reinvent the wheel every time. Um, for example, on the acquisition side, um, we have a boilerplate offer that we use for pretty much every property. The only thing we change is the address, the date, and the purchase price. Uh, everything else in the offer is pretty much the same. We use the same stipulations. We use the same, um, uh, the same closing attorney. We don't even have to change the signatures on, on the document because we do everything electronically. Um, so we can churn out offers in about three minutes nice. um, because we don't we don't try and handcraft every offer and change around every offer right um, we do the same type of renovation on every project we use the same finished materials we use the same paint colors um, we try and use the same contractors um, so they get to know each other and, and when our contractors work together a lot they become more efficient um, we try not to negotiate on prices. Um, our contractors tend to be very loyal, 
and they know that as long as they're giving us good prices, we're not going to negotiate with them because when you get into negotiating, you have to get into to getting lots of bids and and I, I understand the idea of trying to keep your your um, your contractors honest, um, but what you'll find is when you start giving your contractors a lot of work, they're going to stay honest because they realize that it's it's a win-win for everybody. Let me ask you a quick question, and I don't want to stop your momentum because I know where you're going with this, but your contractors, you don't negotiate a lot. Do you have standardized pricing? Do you have an agreement? The house, painting a house is a dollar twenty-five a square foot, so forth, so on, or is it just a general? You kind of know what it should be, and as long as they're kind of where you think it should be, you're good. It's the second. Um, yeah, we don't have specific pricing. Okay. For some things, we know what things cost, and 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 we know what a reasonable markup is. But for the most part, for example, paint, um, we have a we have a pretty good idea of what a house would cost to paint. If um, if one of our contractors comes in and says it's going to cost. $3,000 to paint this house and we're thinking it's closer to 2000 I might say to him, hey, we both know that this is typically a $2,000 job. What's the difference? And most likely he's going to give us a reasonable answer to that question because he knows we're going to ask the question. Right, right. Um, we've done enough jobs that he knows that we're accustomed to paying a certain amount for a certain certain job. Um, and if, if his quote is going to be a good bit higher or lower, we're going to ask why. Gotcha. Um, so, but we don't, we don't generally, uh, I'm a big fan of, of not, not, not arguing over every penny. Um, for me, um, having a, a smooth transaction, um, that's hassle free is, is worth it to spend a few extra dollars here and there. Yeah. Um, if, if a contractor comes back and says it's going to be this much, um, I, if I negotiated with them. I might save 50 or 100 bucks on that project. But what I've done is I've set him up to think on the next project, he's going to negotiate with me. So I'm going to start my pricing a little higher in anticipation of that. Yep. Um, and so basically by negotiating once, you've basically set yourself up to negotiate on every project from here on out yep. because the contractor is going to be adding extra into his bid knowing you're going to negotiate. So true. So, so I'd rather just trust my contractors. Certainly, I've had one or two contractors that over time, their prices start to go up, um, and we either have to have a discussion or I have to let them go. Um, but, but most of my contractors, they, they recognize it's a win-win, and, and they're, they're happy to do the right thing, knowing that I'm going to do the right thing as well. Nice. I like it. Okay, segmentation, replication. Segmentation, replication. Another example of replication is we stage every property. Um, we have a moving crew that, that brings furniture from one house to the other. They know where to set it up for the most part because we always make our living rooms look the same. We always make our dining rooms look the same. We always make our bedrooms look the same. Yeah. So my <laughs> wife is there to kind of point them in the right direction, but uh, it, doing everything the same saves a lot of time. Yeah. Um, so segmentation, replication. Uh, another big one for us is documentation. Um there are a lot of things in our business that we do over and over and over again. And for example, um, I might do the, the acquisition in multiple cities, but I'm going to have different project managers in, in each city. Um, and if I have to go back and, and train every project manager from scratch, um, it's going to take a long time. So what I did was I had my project manager from Atlanta put together 
a set of checklists that he uses in his daily job. Um, and when we hired our, our project manager in Milwaukee, I was able to hand them this set of checklists that basically talked about all the things he does in his job, how he manages the contractors, how he manages the schedule, how he manages the budget. And I now know that my project manager in Milwaukee is doing the same thing as my project manager in Atlanta. Um, and that makes my job easier because I can manage them the same. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's brilliant. Yep. Um, by the same token, I document um, all we, – we have checklists for what we do from the minute we get a house under contract to the minute it's closed. We have checklists from the minute it's closed to the minute we start um, um, renovations. I have checklists from finishing renovations to getting it staged. Um, and these are things that um, if my wife needs to do something while I'm gone or if I need to do something while my project manager is gone – any of us can kind of take over the other role because there's enough documentation around everything that we do that it's really, it's just checklists. Right. Um, so documentation has been huge for us. Um, an, another big one, um, we're really big on delegation. Um, by nature, I'm a control freak. My wife is a control freak, um, but we realize it, and we make a concerted effort to to trust other people that we work with. Um, it, it's burned us a few times in the past. Certainly, not everybody's trustworthy, right. um, but we don't take the 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 attitude that we need to micromanage people. Um, we give people the opportunity to screw up. I guess I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> in many cases, they surprise you and they don't. Um, and it's a lot easier to, to give people leeway and then rein them in if you have to than to go the other way. If people feel micromanaged, it's, it's going to be hard to ever then give them, them the opportunity to go out on their own because they expect to be micromanaged. Yeah, they never um, think for themselves. They never, they it, never learn to think for themselves. Exactly, exactly. And, and we're very big on it, it's okay to make a mistake. Because making a mistake means it's probably never going to be made again. Um, yeah. and, and the sooner you, you get a mistake out of the way, the sooner you can feel like, okay, we've learned from it and we can move on. Yeah. Um, so we're really big on, on, on delegation. Um, and then the last piece, and I don't really have a cool Asian name for it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, um, but um, we tend to be pretty strict about things that we do in our business. Uh, we, there, there are certain rules we have um, that, that we try and follow every time. So, um, for example, when we sell a house, um, we have a, a pretty strict set of rules that we require from our buyers. Um, a lot of our buyers want six weeks to close and they want three weeks of inspections and they want this and they want that. Um, and it's really easy to let things get out of control. Um, and so we basically say to our buyers, look, you have four weeks to close and you have seven days for inspections and you have 21 days for your financing contingency. And we, we, we help them mitigate if there are any problems. For example, if they say, um, we can't close my, my, our, our mortgage broker can't close in, in, in 30 days. Like you're asking us to, what are we going to do about this? Our response is use our mortgage broker because yeah. our mortgage broker can. Yeah. And if he can't do it, um, then there's going to be no penalty to you. In fact, Every day our mortgage broker is late, we'll give you money. Um, <laughs> nice. Because we really we, – we'd love for everybody to use our mortgage broker because we know the deal is going to close. Exactly. And it, it's worth it for us to pay for that. Yep. Um, we, requ we require buyers to use our closing attorney. Um, so, so that way um, 
um, we know the deal is going to get closed correctly. We know that our closing attorney is going to keep in close contact with us. If there's any issues, they're going to make us aware of it. So it just it makes our lives easier by enforcing this 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 policy. And, and I'm not a big fan of policy mm-hmm. uh, because it, it's always very arbitrary. Yeah. Um, but in this case, it really helps our business run more smoothly. And I think there are a lot of buyers who, when they hear all of our conditions up front, get really annoyed. Um, but when the deal closes on time and they're moving into their new house, they're probably pretty happy that that we kept as much control over the situation as we did. Yeah, you probably kept them out of more aggravation than they even know. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. You've really, by annoying them, you've you've helped them, you know, bypass a lot of pitfalls. Exactly. Um, so, so basically putting, putting policies in place that, that you follow and your employees follow and, and you ensure that everybody on your team and your buyers have to follow as well. Um, obviously, there are times when you're going to have to be flexible, um, but it's always good to know where you want to draw the line and do your best to draw it there at all, all times. All right. I came up with a, a shin. It's military, militarization. Of, I like of the it. process. I like it. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> I just, I want it so bad for there to be a shun at the end of that. So, uh, yeah, I was 100% listening, but at the end, I had to come up with something. So, I like that. I'm putting, I'm putting that in my next book. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, listen, I, man, I tell you what, I, I told you before we started here, I, I usually shoot for half an hour to 35 minutes, and I've completely blown that because there's no way in the world I'm going to stop what we're doing here. Um, but we have to at this point, I guess. At some point, we have to call call a timeout here. But, man, I, just great stuff, Jay. I, I really, really appreciate this, and I want to make sure that people know how to find you. And I'm going to start off by saying they need to go to 123flip dot com that's your blog where you give just an insane obscene amount of information out and very transparent of all the deals that you've done i mean it's just just going through and reading the deals that you've done is a huge education because like you said doing a deal is the best education the second best education is following somebody else's deal so they get to follow all of your deals and i think that that's a great place for them to go and find you um i know that you also uh have a book right now on amazon that is doing really well the book two books books. i'm sorry i the one i'm looking at is the book on flipping houses how to buy rehab and resell residential properties um that book is doing awesome what's the name of the other book i don't Uh, know the other book is uh the book on estimating rehab costs awesome it's it's basically a book on putting together uh scopes of work and and figuring out how to figure out how much your but how much your uh, your rehab's going to cost you which is one of the key components to figuring out what you're going to offer on a house so that you don't lose money so i highly suggest people go and take a look at that are both of those available through your website or do you have to go straight to amazon uh, both of those are available on amazon.com Okay, awesome. And then also, like we talked about a few times, people can definitely find you on Bigger Pockets. You have a big presence there. Is there anywhere else? Any other any other points that we should make here? Things that you're working on? Well, I, I will throw this out. Um, we have a big project in the works. Um, I don't know when this is going to air, but um, we're probably going to launch this project at the end of May. Um, and so, what I would say is, if you're interested, uh, check in on my website every once in a while. Um, I think anybody that wants a really, really interesting and detailed case study um, is going to be really interested in this. So I, awesome. I'll leave it at that because we haven't announced it yet. But uh, <laughs> good. But, but I think that'll be exciting. All right, let's go there and follow it. I know I'll be following it. Uh, you're a great guy. You're very generous with your time and with the information about your business and, and helping people. So I just can't thank you enough. And I'm just thrilled that we finally got a chance to do this. And, and I appreciate it. 
Hey, I love your podcast, and I, I really appreciate this, Mike. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks a lot, Jay. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, guys, one last thing before we go. I would just like to ask, if you're enjoying this podcast, if you're really getting something out of it, if you think it provides value, then please go to iTunes and give me a rating and review. It helps me out a ton. It helps me reach more people. It allows me to help more people, and that's really what I'm trying to do here is help people. I'm trying to answer questions and and provide as much value as I can. And the best way for me to reach more people and to really provide value is for you to go and give me a rating and review. iTunes puts a ton, a ton of weight on that, and I really would appreciate it. Until next time, if investing in real estate is your dream, there's only one way you can make it a reality. Just start.